a diverse room is a progressive decision, but a diverse room doesn't guarantee a progressive room. And I feel like I'm much more interested now in progressive rooms. And so while diversity and inclusion and representation is incredibly important, I think it's also just as important to consider like what values we want to bring forward into the world. Hello and welcome to Tender Buttons, a podcast chatting to writers and artists about their process and politics. With me, Jessica Andrews, and my co-host, Jack Young. If you'd like to buy any of the books from today's episode, as a listener of the show, you can get a 10% discount by entering Tender Buttons at the Storysmith checkout. You can find them online at storysmithbooks.com or visit them in person on North Street in Bedminster. In today's episode, we're really excited to be joined by the brilliant Bristol-based writer Nikesh Shukla, whose most recent book was Brown Baby, a memoir of race, family and home. He's also written three acclaimed novels, Coconut Unlimited, Meat Space and The One Who Wrote Destiny. Nikesh is editor of the groundbreaking and award-winning essay collection The Good Immigrant, which won the Reader's Choice at the Books of My Bag Awards, and co-edited The Good Immigrant USA with Shemaine Suleiman. Nikesh has also written two YA novels, Run Riot and The Boxer, and added to that, he was one of Time magazine's cultural leaders and is twice featured in the bookseller's 100 Most Influential People in Publishing. Hi Nikesh, it's lovely to have you on Tender Buttons. Thanks so much for coming to chat to us today. Thanks so much for having me. And we were wondering, Nikesh, if you could start with a reading from Brown Baby. Yeah, sure. So I'm going to read from Towards the End. It's not easy, Gunga. The road to quality is not easy. Obstacles everywhere, roadblocks, people, the world turns cruelly whether you're there or not. Even when you turn up, you won't be heard. That will mess with your head. Even when it affects you the most, so you turn up and cast your vote, you won't be heard. That might make you feel like not bothering next time. Even when you defy the doomy statistics about voter turnout and your age demographic and turn up and put a cross in a box, you still won't be heard. Does it make you want to burn everything to the ground? I hear you, my baby, I hear you. But like me, you keep going. Because the alternative, that not having your say, is not worth even considering. In the hours after the Brexit referendum result was announced in 2016, I was told to go back to that, go back to Brownland. Someone threatened to set my greasy ass on fire, and a friend of a friend comforted me by telling me, "Don't worry, you're not that kind of immigrant." Three days later, and I couldn't leave our house because I was afraid of being shouted at on my way to work. As I helped the young people I mentored at the time make a film on the street, I overheard one man yell at another, "Well, it's not your fucking country, is it?" Everything felt precarious, but I kept going because the alternative was not worth considering. That seems like a really good like entry into Brown Baby. And the first question we wanted to ask is when and why did you decide to write Brown Baby? I must uh, warn your readers, I have a cold. And uh, <laughs> it's like the first cold I've had in months. It feels so world ending. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know if I decided to write brown baby or it was sort of incepted in me by this amazing editor called carol tonkinson um because i'm not a non-fiction writer i'm a fiction writer that's where my my heart is uh but in 2016 i decided i put together a collection of essays called the good immigrant um and in my essay in that collection i kind of experimented with this epistolary voice uh where i was writing to a you uh, like a like a the next generation you know obviously 
been hugely inspired by James Baldwin my whole life and I'd not long read Ta-Nehisi Coates's Between the World and Me which was a huge influence on The Good Immigrant and I did that and the book came out and it blew up and I was really excited to return to fiction and I was also really excited to start writing for teenagers which as a youth worker is something that was really important to me and the uh, sort of a couple of things happened in those years where I was promoting The Good Immigrant. The first was I had a kid or I had a second kid and the second thing I did was tour the country talking about racism for a living which is horrible <laughs> it's like a horrible thing to do like no no one sets out to go well I shall talk about racism for a living and yet here I was talking about racism for a living going around the country going around a very hostile very divided country turning up in all manner of places like schools or very posh middle class literature festivals or universities and talking about all of the stuff that inspired the good immigrant and no matter where I turned up, no matter what the audience, their reaction to it was always very hard because you talk about these things that felt really heavy and important and you talk about your own personal experience because that's how people seem to understand these complex issues um, by relating it to something very physical and tangible. And then you'd throw it out to questions and someone in the audience would then share their story of racism and you'd have to hold that and then someone else in the crowd would then go well I think what you guys are talking about is a load of bollocks and you're the real racist for talking about racism you're making things more divided you are you you're the problem you don't deserve, you don't deserve to criticize this country go back if you to where you came from if you don't like it and after each of these events um a lot of the contributors would go out and go to the pub and hang out and decompress. And because I had a rule, like if I was missing bedtime with my daughters, I had to try and be there for breakfast. And so I'd be on trains all hour, all hours of the night, try to get home. And though I didn't get that decompression time. And I just sat on the trains haunted by racism. And it was a very lonely existence. And uh, around that time, I wrote a, a like a column for the pool magazine r.i.p the pool about my daughter refusing to play with a doll because it was brown and she thought that brown was dirty and i didn't know where she had got that from i don't know where that had showed up in her life and so i wrote this column about it and i was approached by the observer magazine about whether uh, i wanted to turn that column into a regular feature and I just was like I can't write about parenting and racism week after week that sounds like not something I want to do at all um, and so I talked to the editor of the Observer magazine and I said I don't want to write about bad stuff I want to write, I want to write about joy I'm a, you know I'm a comedy writer I like finding the joy in things and she was like well it can't just be about joy what else can it be about and so so yeah the, the central question that I me, my editor and I decided to ask was how do I raise my kids to be joyful in a world that feels so sad and bleak that I feel so sad that I feel so angry about and that was what I did and that column just sort of flew out of me there were some months where I got to write like really fun nonsensey things there were other times I got to write about my kids there were other times I got to write about 
colonialism because that's exactly what parents want to read on a Sunday morning in their supplements <laughs> um, and just as I was finding my voice with it the column ended which was a huge shame and uh, this editor Carol Tomkinson was like is there a book in this do you want to write a memoir and I was a bit like oh, I'm 38 I was 38 at the time I was 38 who writes a memoir at 38 that feels ridiculous and she was like, well, just, you know, just think about it. And the more I thought about it, the more the more I was like, well, my parenting journey isn't very special. Like nothing out of the ordinary happened. Everything was as it should have been. And so I just don't feel like I've got enough to say. Like I couldn't write you a linear um, parenting memoir because just not enough happened. That would be of note. And so I thought, well, maybe I can go back to that central question and think about all of the sub questions that I was asked along the way or I was asking along the way. So, like, how do I raise my kids to be joyful? What are the things uh, that make me so sad and angry? What keeps me up at night? How can I protect them from these things? Well, how can I have honest conversations with them about these things? And I realized that I was actually was having these conversations and these conversations would spiral me off into like lots of interesting ways of thought and research and like chats with friends and stuff and so that's where the book emerged from it was like my attempt to write something hopeful for the next generation and I addressed it to my daughters because I thought that will keep me honest but also keep me hopeful because I know who it's for and also it gave me this the sort of the structure structuring it around all of the sub questions one might ask uh that lead to this big central thematic thing allowed me to be just be a bit more experimental with with the like how it's written it's written very fragmentary it's written non-linearly and also allowed me to find this like I, I didn't set out to write a grief memoir but the thing that kind of emerged was like it, I, I wanted to write about my mum quite a lot and so the moment that emerged on the page that kind of helped me play about with what the book looked like Mm, I think that with the structure that that's something that I noticed quite a lot which I thought like it played it really interestingly like the how to's and those sub questions that you ask you know you could get that from like a self-help series of questions but then in that in your book it's like you say this kind of like experiment where it's like this work in progress so I really loved how it like played with that chapter of like you know quite a few of the how to's didn't have like a co comprehensive answer and that was the point like it wasn't like this mastery of like how to do this which I really liked that about them. yeah like I, I think I was sort of doing like a subversive self-help memoir because it's so in vogue at the moment because like ultimately the uh, the where I landed was like I have no clue about any of this stuff and and like I guess you know when you teach writing the thing that you kind of the thing that I often say to writers is it's not like if I ask you a question about a bit in this work, it's not necessarily about you knowing the answer. It's sometimes the act of asking the question is the most important bit. And that's why, how I wanted those chapters to feel like the, how do I do this? Like, you know, I want it, like I wanted the very fact of asking it to like give it its importance and then it, it gave me this this opportunity to kind of just play like the, each chapter is structured exactly the same my child says something which freaks me out which leads me to a line of inquiry that i make which then makes me realize i have no answers so i then talk to loads of people uh and then i realize that none of us know what we're doing is ultimately like the the structure of the book but also like 
because it was because it's a book about grief and it's a book about parenting i wanted to like i really liked the idea of how time flat time becomes very flat when you're when you grieve like my mum has been dead for 10 years this year but she's also been dead for 10 days and 10 hours and 10 months all at the same time and it's the same with parenting like my kid is one and two and six and six months and six hours old all at the same time and that flattening of time is really interesting because you're just feeling all of this stuff all of the time and so and so that's why like like non-close readers of the book have gone oh it's really repetitive and i'm like well yes that's the point that's what happens when you spiral you you cycle around the same things and you try to resolve them but sometimes you don't resolve them because life's not very easy and like a traditional self-help memoir might point you towards some sort of very clear-cut resolution but i don't want to, i don't want to lie to my audience because like the other thing is my kids are they're growing up all the time so the conversations like the questions are still pertinent but the answers change because like the way they as their world expands it becomes easier to talk to them about what the world looks like you know yeah that's something that i was wondering like as your daughters get older I was wondering, have you thought about the different ways in which they'll read this book, like when they're 15, when they're 30, like when they're 50, and how their relationship to you and to the text is something that's probably always going to be changing? Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing to think about, because I think if I raise my kids in the way that I want to raise them, they'll never need to read the book, because they'll just know all of this stuff. They'll probably, if anything, get to like 15 and go, oh my God, that's the most cringy thing ever that's ever happened. I really remember once, like, my ex my ex-girlfriend is American and she used to be roommates with the daughter of like a, an author of like a significant piece of American literature. And I remember meeting the, the friend of my ex-girlfriend and just being like, oh my God, your dad, that's like, that's so cool. And she was like, it's really embarrassing actually and I was thinking about thinking about this like when people were asking me how my kids would react to the books I was like they'll probably be really embarrassed because like the other thing is like even though the book is about the flattening of time you still have to put some sort of parameters around it it's not like an endless spool of time I am like trying to encapsulate a certain period like those first five I don't know if you guys have kids but like those first five years which just sort of seem endless and then five years has passed and you're like oh my god so I I kind of had to just sort of put a marker down and go this is the point to which I'm writing because like where my where my daughter and I are talking about these issues now is very different to how we were talking about them before like she's like lockdown and their world becoming becoming much bigger and also becoming much stronger is uh, smaller sorry has completely changed how they view the world like you know she is discovering through watching loads of like disney cartoons series about princesses who are also badasses that the world's really unfair to women and so they're talking to us about that sort of stuff they're also like you know we live in bristol which is a very radical city which is like a city with a huge uh history of slavery um as you guys know um and you know we we like we live very close to the colston plinth the empty colston plinth and my daughter's school has an association with colston and they wanted to talk to the whole student body about it so my my 
did I say my sister? My, my daughter, rather. My daughter and I are having complex conversations about race and racism because the school is involving her in conversations about what to do about Colston. And <clears throat> so all of these things are changing all of the time. What, what, what has the significant change that's happened actually has been me and how I relate the world to her because um so last year she kept asking why do we have a black lives matter poster in our in our window we had, you know we'd explain explain to her as best we could and then she wanted to talk talk about colston because that's what they're talking about at school so we we try and talk about colston and the british empire you say the words british empire to her and uh she's like oh they were bad people and i'm like yes critical race theory is real fuck you tories no it's not um well, it is real, but anyway. Um, she asked me about the Bristol bus boycotts earlier this year. And in explaining what the Bristol bus boycotts were her, were to her, I realised that I had to explain to her what racism was, which was a big moment because we've spent so long, like, talking to her about her race and her skin colour and her heritage and making her proud of that, making her feel a part of that, making her feel empowered and all the rest of it, you know, she's really really into learning about india she's really really into like talking to members of our family and hoovering up gujarati words and like our house is covered in like paraphernalia that is um related to to my background paraphernalia is probably the wrong word but like stuff that's related to my background and we never talked about racism though and so i started to tell her about racism and i said you know there are people who don't like other people because of the colour of their skin. And she was like, what do you mean? I was like, well, you know, there are some people who treat other people differently, negatively, because of their different skin colour to them. She was like, that sounds stupid. That doesn't make any sense. And I was like, my, my initial reaction was to go, oh, well, you know, maybe someone might be racist because... And then I stopped myself and I was like, oh, God, yes. I am... I'm trying to make her see the world through my eyes rather than explaining the world to her as it makes sense to her and it was a really big learning moment for me because I am cynical and I'm weary about having these conversations and I'm jaded and I think everyone's a racist I don't really know but like do you know what I mean like I've just spoken about it so much that there's no way for me to talk about it in a way that doesn't come with all of that baggage and I thought that was really unfair of me to try and do that in that moment and so I just had to go, yeah, you're right. It is stupid. It doesn't make sense. And she was like, well, then why do people do it? And I was like, I wish I knew. I wish I fundamentally understood. And so that's how, so that was like my big learning about it was just, I have, to, I have to come to her more than bring her to me in these conversations. Because I think in Brown Baby, like one of the most complex things that you kind of, do of in it is where like this kind of tension between protection and preparation so I think there's like one section where you're kind of where your daughter has it's to do with like a colouring crayon and you're she's not choosing like the brown colouring crayon or something and then your white friend had said oh stop preparing um, your daughter for the world as you've lived it and let her discover it for your own kind of thing and that's really interesting like I guess that tilt that you're describing with like where um it's coming through 
a different perspective from like all of the stuff that you've experienced as an adult like like through your child's eyes yeah yeah but like going back to that moment that i had with my friend that friend their opinion was you should not talk be talking about these things at all whereas the thing i've come to realize is sort of i don't think we i do think we should be talking about these things but i just have to remember my responsibility in talking about these things um and that i think that's been like the biggest change for me is like i still disagree with that that friend about it you know because it is stuff that they are le- you know the fact that they my my daughter is watching um sophia the first which is like this disney plus show and going why are there different rules for boy princess boy princes and girl princesses and i'm like world hates women i'm really sorry like no um and then she's like why and so like then we we have to talk about it like i know i've presented that as me saying that very bluntly obviously that's how the conversation went but um it's i think i think the whole thing is so tough and if we aren't talking about these things especially when our kids are sort of imbibing them from bits of popular culture that we sort of don't really have much control over then we are not showing that these things are important like it is important in this house to have a running conversation about the inequality between boys and girls about the inequality between races the like and so on and so forth and talk about climate catastrophe because it'll be disingenuous of us to ignore it when they are picking it up from different parts of like their education and different parts of what they're watching as well my worry in all this stuff is who who deems which bits of these conversations are important because i have noticed that like up until about last year when george floyd was murdered and the sort of the reckoning about race that happened after that it was only then that white parents were discovering that they needed to talk to their kids about racism because the the reason they the, because they weren't talking to their kids about racism black parents and brown parents were having to adjust, adjust how they talk to their kids about racism there's this really, really amazing book uh, by angie thomas called the hate you give which became a film and like a cornerstone of like the first opening chapters of that book and, and the opening chapters of that film is like the dad running through with the son and the daughter what happens if a police the police stop your car like where what do you do with your hands what how do you talk and how do you be and all the rest of it and the thing is they're only having that conversation that way because of how the world is and if we can have a com like those kids shouldn't be having that conversation and yet they need to the necessity to have that conversation is there and so like i i do think like you know we all parents should be talking to their kids about racism uh, like the onus shouldn't be on the kids who are vic- who who's who are victims of racism like men should be thinking about how to talk to their kids about sexism and the patriarchy and so on and so forth i as a father i hate saying this but like i as a father of daughters it sounds so fucking self-aggrandizing like i have to think about my position in raising my daughters and like and actually like a lot of the thinking that i did around all of this stuff it kind of led me to the conclusion that we really need to think about how we raise boys um because like it's the same with 
you know those black kids in the hate you give and being raised like with that conversation around how to deal with the police being so normalized with them like we re- like it sort of you, you know having to raise your kids prepared for the way the world is rather than trying to refashion what the world could be because not everyone has sort of deemed these things as important just sort of it troubles me a little bit you know yeah I, I mean I guess it's also about like what the lived experience of your children is going to be depending on their position in the world um, and I was quite struck by what you said about how white people often debate a lot of these issues but black and brown people are actually living them and how that's different if you're living it in your everyday and how that maybe it doesn't mean that the conversation is not really important but it it it's not just language anymore it's to do with your body and the way that you move through the world is that something that yeah you think about in relation to your daughters yeah definitely like obviously i say this as a as as a brown male knowing that there are different there are many different complexities around being a person of color or you know in 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 this country in in america in the way the global west or what have you um but i know that like when i walk into a room of majority white people and i if i am noticed decisions are made about me you know like and those decisions can be unconscious or they can be conscious but those decisions are made um that is if i'm seen in the first place you know um and messes with your head dude like what can i say like it's such a horrible way to kind of move through the world knowing that people are unconsciously reacting to your very presence um and how the hell do you raise your kids in that environment how do you raise your kids to be prepared for that without it feeling too bleak you know so that's why we spend a lot of time being really proud of their culture and like one of the things that i i hadn't i hadn't you know going back to what you said about language like there is a, like an element of language that i think is really really important when it comes to mixed race kids that i hadn't ever really considered before but like mixed race kids are always re- re- and i've done it and like i'm guilty of this but like when they're referred to as like half this and half that and you realize that you're kind of by using the word half you're kind of there's an inference of not enough and i don't want my kids to not ever feel half of anything i want them to always feel wholly who they choose to be you know i think that really links to um what you wrote in your memoir about art and representation as well like i love the stuff about um you know wanting your daughters to see like brown characters in kids picture books or like I think you have a friend who is a brown female doctor and it was really important for your daughter to meet her. And I I guess I was thinking about like your own path as a writer, you know, someone who creates stories and like builds worlds and like why, I mean, I guess you thought this before you had kids, but maybe especially afterwards, why it's so important for kids to see people like them represented in the books that they read and the films. Yeah, of course. Like, I remember uh, an agent of mine asking me why my characters were brown. And I was like, they just are. And it, it sort of, it took me a beat to realise that what they were inf- inferring was like, there's no reason for them to be, so make them white, you know? Which I just found really troubling at the time. Um, 
but the, you know the thing is like when it comes to representation like i guess my feeling on it has changed significantly in the last couple of years but here's 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 what i'll say and then i'm going to undercut it with something else you know that that whole thing of like if you see it you can be it is is an important thing when you're making critical decisions about who you want to be like whether you're a kid or whether you're you know you're just about to go into secondary school or you're just about to leave school or um you know you're in your 20s or you know like when you you come of age at different periods of your life you make decisions about who you are and what you want to be at different periods of your life and sometimes seeing other people who look like you in those spaces can be life-changing and because it's not you know like when my kids read books and they see brown kids like having fun or investigating crimes or going to the shop with their dad and buying like a french stick or what have you that it kind of it normalizes life for them it normalizes them as the main character and if white kids read that it normalizes for them that brown kids can be like the main character or something i really remember when um uh like jodie whittaker was announced as the new doctor who and one of the old one of the previous doctors i can't remember which one i may have been pete david peter davidson i may be wrong on that but he, he said he was sad that the, that boys were going to have one fewer role model and i just thought that was utterly preposterous because boys can have girls as role models at, like if you're looking at it at its very basic at a very basic level and like <clears throat> when you think about you think about the that ghostbusters film in 20 2015 like you know we're in the imagination business and yet the people have been so underserved the people's imaginations have been so underserved that they're willing to suspend their disbelief for worlds where ghosts need busting but they can't suspend their disbelief enough for the thought that four women can bust ghosts and that to me shows me that like diversity isn't just for me like that that level of inclusion and representation isn't just for me it's for like it's for everyone it's for you know so we can watch what they wanted to rename it officially rename as lady ghostbusters and and go oh wow in this world where ghosts need busting and so on and so forth and it just boggles my mind that in the imagination business we still people still lack the imagination to um put people in different spaces right and <clears throat> like it can it can be life-changing like I, I've, I've said this many times before but like when i came across kareem amir uh the buddha of suburbia um like that first line my name is Kareem Amir and I'm an Englishman born and bred almost like that one word almost changed my life because I was like oh my god this is me this is I I felt like such an outsider until I read those lines it can really really change your life now what I've noticed is representation for me is like I think for a lot of people representation for representation's sake is like is seems to be enough for them but what I've noticed is <clears throat> um, representation for representation's sake is how you end up with people like Priti Patel and Sajid Javid and Rishi Sunak spearheading the most white supremacist government this country's ever seen. And that's saying something, you know, um, because I think people look at them and go, oh, if you put all their politics to one side, isn't it great that you can ascend to be in this position? And I just think, well... Look at what they're doing to fucking refugees. Like, 
look at how they're talking to footballers who want to stand in solid kneel in solidarity with uh with people who are being murdered in the streets like look look at look at the like they're not they're not my people um and it reminds me that like a diverse room is a progressive decision but a diverse room doesn't guarantee a progressive room and i feel like i'm much more interested now in progressive rooms and so while diversity and inclusion and representation is incredibly important i think it's also just as important to consider like what values we want to bring forward into the world um like i don't necessarily want like a marketplace of ideas when it comes to ideas of equality, you know or equity I, I feel like that's a basic thing that we should all strive for right just bouncing off that i guess thinking of your own experience of the publishing industry in the uk i wondered if you could talk a bit about your work at with the good literary agency is that part of like creating the room rather than just having you know certain voices yeah sure so like i mean the good literary agency is a literary agency i helped to set up after the success of the good immigrant because i saw that i could use the kind of the power and the kudos and the influence that, that doing the book like the good immigrant gave me to do something good for once with my life and so we thought setting up a literary agency kind of helps diversify the gatekeepers because ultimately like if you've got just got like literary agents from one demographic and they're like oh but my list is very diverse how diverse is it really you know like taste is so subjective no matter what people will claim is the opposite and imagine what literary culture in the uk would look like if we had a, an inclusive set of gatekeepers what would their lists look like and so we set up this literary agency to represent writers who whose stories feel underrepresented and you know i have a very backseat job like i just turn up to the staff meeting and like marvel at everyone's amazing hard work i don't do anything there but that wasn't ever the point the point wasn't ever for me to do stuff the point was up for us to create a space where we could create new gatekeepers and that's been really exciting because the stuff that they're picking up the writers that they're finding these are writers who deserve to be published or des like who who deserve to have their stories told but just haven't found the right like cheerleaders yet and now there is a space where they can i think that's really important i think something i've kind of picked up on like within the publishing industry is like there's a big push for diverse voices but not necessarily like the emotional support or guidance for people there and I think it kind of risks becoming exploitative if it's just like okay we're gonna like platform this person but we don't have the resources like to support them in other ways I've been trying to think about like well what's the solution to that but something like the good literary agency which if its focus is on more diverse voices that's different to like some kind of old world literary agency just beefing up their list yeah because the other thing we do is like we don't we're not our primary concern isn't just going right all of the creative writing ma's all of the like short story prizes all of the courses like the curtis brown course and the february academy course and the london writers awards 
they're all great organizations but like if the literary agents are only looking to them to hoover up diversity like these will be people who have like had the support or the income to be able to do these courses and the time and the support and so on and so forth and so the agency we take writers on who are quite early on in their career who aren't book who aren't other ready when we take them on we like uh, the stuff that i do that is probably the most involved is like i mentor writers because in the way that i've mentored writers my entire career um and that means that they have early support to kind of get them to where they're going like we're mentoring a writer who is a journalist who's you know built up quite a quite a portfolio of amazing journalism they've done a non-fiction book they want to write a ya they're moving into fiction the assumption that they could just like sit down and write a fiction ya where is was there except in our agency um they were they were like do you need some support and so i'm basically giving this writer like a free how to write a novel course uh with like exercises and like mini lectures and stuff to teach them how to write ya because like it's not automatically assumed that they're going to be up and ready to write ya because they wrote a couple of viral articles earlier and it's stuff like that that i think makes the difference there's a lot of pastoral care at the agency and i think a lot of that comes from the fact that i was a youth worker for a really long time and really believe in the value of long-term mentoring um and long-term development and support switching on to brown baby again when you're walking around with your daughter in the early hours and you're listening to Wu-Tang albums and you talk about how telling your baby different stories at those moments and talking about like your family and politics in Bristol kind of like stretches the city a little more each night I really liked that phrase and I, I wondered if you could expand on it a bit like how how those walks kind of stretched the city for you yeah so like <clears throat> i guess i'm a classic londoner in that i grew up in london didn't know much of the world outside of london never thought i'd leave london and then for various reasons left london and i ended up in this city that has a very very uh specific identity a very you know brilliant identity but it's a city that like people people from the who don't live in bristol have a very strong perception of what they think it is which is often very different from what the city actually is and when I first moved to Bristol, I didn't have a job in Bristol. So I would go be in London three days a week because so I still had a job in London. I'd stay at my dad's two nights a week and then I'd come home and I'd just want to be in our house. So I didn't really get to know the city very well. And then when our kids were born, I just, you know, I was walking around the city and suddenly I just found like I was just learning what the city was a bit more. Um, it's, you know... I saw this amazing talk by the Runnymede Trust once where they were talking about how you can measure social inequality in cities by the strength of their public transport system. And Bristol has a particularly bad public transport system. It's a very socially unequal city. Um, it's sort of very zonal. And I kind of realised that the my everything in Bristol is about the centre because all the buses go into the centre, whereas like, you know, in London you can get a bus that kind of goes all across northeast london or you can get a bus that goes from south to west and doesn't stop and like not many buses in bristol seem to do that so i just there was just never any opportunity for me to learn much beyond the center and where we lived 
and then suddenly I had this sort of opportunity to walk around during a very hot summer and I, I was just like I'm going to get to learn this city a bit more just like explore its nooks and crannies and it really made me understand it a lot more I really I, I saw so much more of the city and I, it just finally felt like somewhere I lived rather than somewhere I was sort of temporarily staying in because I might move back to London one day I love the episode where you're on one of your walks and you bump into a bunch of students coming out of club who are all really high and it, it feels like it seems to feel like such a stark contrast to where you're at in your life at the time and I was wondering yeah if you could talk about like like that like the boundaries the boundaries of age and like being in different phases and kind of what that feels like basically you're like tell me what it's like being old (laughs) (laughs) sure no um yeah like i've been in bristol like 10 years now and i guess it's that thing i was saying earlier like when like there's especially in literature the the focus on the coming of age tale often being like the transition between 16 and 19 when actually you come of age many times in your life and I feel like I came of a new age in Bristol and uh, found a city that matched that age that I was coming into, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, but it, def- it definitely feels like I'm in a very different part of my life now to where I was before. And <clears throat> like the weird thing about doing youth work in that situation is like, you still would like try to be relevant, even though that is the first thing that puts a lot of young people off. Is like when you're like, oh yeah, I just came across this drill guy, and they're like, oh my god, you still listen to drill? Oh, that's so embarrassing. We really listen to podcasts now. <laughs> Another bit that I like is in the how to the civic responsibility section, and you talk about like how we think. I think quote something like we think too big, and you want to do things in a more scalable way, politics in a more scalable way. Can you speak about that a bit more? Like, what what does that look like? Yeah, sure. I guess, like, most people who've spent a lot of time on Twitter, I just kind of... I realised that nothing was shifting, and if anything, like, Twitter was getting better at keeping you on Twitter, and yet the world wasn't changing. Like, Trump said something dumb, so I quote-tweeted him and called him a dickhead, and the world didn't change and he didn't have a long hard look at himself and go oh my god I, I, he's right I am a dickhead and that just like years and years of doing that I guess for my version of that is like trying to talk about race and talk, talk about racism in the UK and realising that actually people don't want to hear about it and you're the problem because you brought it up and um, I started to think a lot more about how if I focus more on what was going on around me, I think it was like, it was basically like reading the Bristol cable and like learning more about what was going on politically in my city. just gave me such an insight into like how power works in the country yet through a lens that was right in front of me. And it just made me think I need to pay more attention to my immediate surroundings because that's where I can actually make a difference. Um, Because I can work with these people on this youth project and they will then go on and do things and then those things will hopefully blossom into other things and so on and so forth and I can do that change in the city or be part of that change in the city Um, whereas like trying to change things at a national level it just 
I, just, I remember like when the good immigrant came out i was like one of foreign policy's 100 global thinkers and i was like time magazine's like cultural leaders who was changing the world i was like i'm not doing fucking shit on that that level that, that level is impossible and actually all i can do is like try and empower people right in front of me so that's that's why i've like recently gone back to doing youth work stuff after a couple of years away from it which just because it feels useful and it feels like it's you're tangibly making a difference in someone's life rather than like thinking you can get world leaders to feel shame about how awful they are which is just impossible they feel no shame they don't care what you think gives that link as well in terms of you know your daughter learning about local history radical history like the bristol boycott i guess that makes like tangible like how kind of progress can be made in the sea or like i guess see like the fact that young people literally tore colston down it's like there's an empowerment to that i guess as well for young people in the sea yeah yeah definitely um and also it, it is a city where that that is very proud of that part of it no matter what the council and the police act like you know the people who matter are really proud of that radical culture that is in the city like i i think i think i've just been thinking a lot about as i hit my 40s um how, what use can i be and to who and how like what skills do i have and how can those be useful and like after a while you realize that being a loudmouth on twitter isn't gonna change anything for anyone i think that's a good place <laughs> to leave it thanks so much for chatting to us nikesh it's been great to hear your ideas about everything yeah thanks for coming on nikesh it's been great chatting to you cheers if you'd like to keep up to date with tender buttons then you can follow us on twitter and instagram you can find story smith books on north street in bedminster bristol and we'll put links to all our references on the episode page online. We'd also like to thank Ben Vince for allowing us to use his music for our theme.